how do I read the Bible? Uh, I mean, do I read it? Do I read it from the left or from the right? <laughs> it depends whether you're reading the Old Testament or the New, because in the Old Testament it's Hebrew, so of course you read it from the right to the left, and the New Testament's in Greek, so you read. That probably wasn't what you meant. <laughs> what, what what did you mean? How do, how do how do we read the Bible? Any thoughts? Any recommendations? Um, a thousand things. Frequently and thoroughly is the, is the best answer. Um, the Bible was not primarily written in order to be read in ten verse chunks. Um, we have cut the Bible down to size. Now obviously there are some bits like the Psalms and like some passages like the book of James is, is written in very short bursts. But most of it, including Paul's letters and certainly the Gospels, and certainly great books like Isaiah and so on, are read in order to be experienced the way you experience a symphony. Um, imagine if you went to a concert and you got the first 10 bars of Beethoven 5 and then the conductor turned around and said, okay, that, that's all for this week, come back same time next week and we'll have the next 10 bars. You think, wait, well, hey, this, this is... And if somebody said, oh, but if you listen to the whole thing, you'd never remember it all, you think, well, that's not the point. You don't listen to it in order to remember. You will remember quite a lot of it. You listen to it in order to be um, swept along in the full flow and sweep and flood of it. And, and I grieve over the fact that there are many Many, many Christians who have never ever read one of the Gospels or even one of the Epistles straight through at a sitting. John's Gospel, even slowly, will take you two hours. Um, now, if you're really engrossed in a novel, you'd read that for that long quite easily. Why not just allow the thing to wash over you? Of course, then, there's all the time in the world to go back and say, I really now want to do a study on John chapter 13 or whatever it is, and go down into the details of the words. But see the parts in the light of the whole. And that means the whole Bible. Um, and, and one could talk all evening about you know, all the different things that happen when you see, say, the whole of Genesis and Exodus as one single narrative and how that actually works from the beginning to the end. The whole of the Pentateuch, the whole, as I said before, the book of Isaiah, or the way that the Psalms fit together into their whole book, and so on and so on. And my uh, favorite, really, where I started was, was Romans that most people read Romans in little bits and even those who think they know Romans reasonably well they tend to know bits of Romans 1, 2 and 3 then little bits of 5, 6, 7 and 8 and then they worry about 9 to 11 and there's some interesting stuff at the back but instead see Romans as a symphony in four movements think how the themes work until we wrestle with scripture like that we're really not honouring it you know, if this is the book God meant us to have by the Spirit then it's important that we actually uh, take that seriously instead of just snipping it down to make it um, digestible like somebody with a huge banquet in front of them who insists on going to the back room and just making a peanut butter sandwich instead. Now if any of you need me to translate from English into Texan uh, this morning to follow to follow uh, that great scholar N.T. Wright uh, up and just talking about understanding that, that Scripture, the Bible was not written in short chapters and verses for the most part. It was written as God was telling a big story and as he was using people to recount their history and their lives and to see how God worked in that. And as you read larger passages of Scripture, you see that, you see that there are big themes that come out and there are things that are repeated over and over again and when you, when you begin to put those things together, a lot of things begin to make more sense. And, and the teaching and the power become stronger. 
And, and that is the case as we move into some of the history books of the Bible. We're past the, the, the law and the, the first five books attributed to Moses and God establishing his nation and his people. And now we get into the history books where they are actually in the promised land. They're actually at the place where God promised them they would be, although it took them 40 years to get there. And the history becomes, uh, becomes to come alive in those books. And particularly in, in the book of Judges, a book that, uh, that follows or records the history of Israel after Joshua. Joshua is the leader who succeeded Moses and actually led the people into the promised land across the, the Jordan River. And after Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land, uh, there, God begins to raise other leaders up. And some of those stories are told there. Some of you that have, that have been around church a long time or read a lot of the scripture would be familiar with names like Gideon or Deborah. Yes, a, a woman judge, a woman leader of the nation of Israel for a period of time. Uh, Samson. Most of us know about Samson. When you look at me, you think of Samson, that, that sort of thing. Because he did have his head shaved at one time, if you know the story. Okay, some of you are thinking, you think you're buff or strong? No, that wasn't it. He had his head shaved. It wasn't a good thing either. The case in, uh, it's also the case as you look further on into, into books like Chronicles, and, and in particular, this morning I'm thinking about First and Second Kings. When, uh, when you move beyond the point of Judges to where, beginning with Saul and moving forward, you have kings. And First and Second Kings follows the history of Israel, beginning with Solomon. When Israel is kind of at its peak in terms of wealth and power, and then you see what happens after that. And what you see develop, if you read Judges all the way through, or if you read First and Second Kings all the way through, what you see develop is the establishment of a dangerous pattern. There's the establishment of a very dangerous pattern that begins to happen, and it's repeated over and over and over again. You don't have to be a scholar at all to, to look and see this pattern developing if you just simply read. And I'm going to give you some examples of it. I'm going to begin, first of all, in Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. Again, the people have crossed over Jordan. They have, taken, uh, they have taken possession of the land, but there are still enemies there. And it says this, the beginning of Judges chapter 2. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said to the Israelites, I brought you out of Egypt into this land that I swore to give your ancestors. And I said I would never break my covenant with you. This is God speaking. For your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in this land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars, or in other words, their, their places of worship and their idols. But you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So now I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. You see what happened there? You see what's recorded? God had commanded them not to tolerate any other, any other worship of other gods going on in the land that he had given to them. But they let those gods and the worship of that hang around. In other words, they let the source of their greatest temptation stay close by. And then it says, in, as we go further in Judges chapter 2, that the next generation after Joshua, after Joshua dies, it says... The next generation did not acknowledge or remember the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean they forgot who God was. It means they did not remember him in their 
practice their daily life. And so you come to Judges chapter 2, verse 16, where it kind of further describes this pattern in a general way. It says, Then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Yet Israel did not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves by worshiping other gods. How quickly they turned away from the path of their ancestors who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was with that judge and rescued the people from their enemies throughout the judge's lifetime. For the Lord took pity on his people who were burdened by oppression and suffering. But when the judge died, the people returned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who had lived before them. They went after other gods, serving and worshiping them, and they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Now there's the pattern described. Do you see it? You beginning to see it? And then as as the history recording goes on, we start getting names attached to this pattern. Actual people who really lived and seeing how they lived this out. There's numerous examples I could go over and over again. I'll pull out one. uh, The end of Judges uh, chapter 3. End of Judges chapter 3. And uh, when you read through these Old Testament histories, if you don't know how to pronounce the names, do not worry about it. That's, that's not highly important to God because I don't know how to pronounce all of them. And I've been to school a long time. So here we are, uh, verse 31, Judges chapter 3. After Ehud, uh, after Ehud, Shamgar, son of Anath, rescued Israel. He once killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. I wanted to read that verse just because it just sounds to me like Shamgar was like one bad dude. It's like you could put him in the Avengers, next Avengers movie or something. Uh, an ox goad was like a, was like a, a big a pole, sometimes as tall as eight feet. And on, and on, on one, one part of the top of it would be a big flat piece of metal or of, of iron. And on the other side of it would be a, a spear point. And... Uh, he took that weapon, uh, one guy, and wiped out 600 people. Seriously, seriously tough. But, look, but listen to what happened in, in uh, Judges chapter 4. After Ehud's death, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazor, a Canaanite king, and the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. And Sisera, who had 900 iron chariots, ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. That's a typical example of the pattern that begins to get established in the lives of God's people. And if you look in the book of Kings, uh, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you see the same thing beginning to be played out, even though circumstances are somewhat different because now there's a succession of kings that come on. If you look at the beginning of the, at, at beginning with Solomon, and Solomon we know to be the wisest man that ever lived, and we attribute to him most of the Proverbs and, and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon, those, those books in the Bible, and under him the, the temple was finished that his father began construction on, and he was a great leader, and it, it, it described in the Bible at one time as the richest man in the world. But the ending of Solomon's life is not as encouraging. Because it says, you see, Solomon had 600 wives 
and I can't remember right now how many other concubines, which is like sort of a wife, but not a wife, but you know, what a mess. Solomon, a lot of energy there, a lot of energy, got to admire that. Um, uh, and it says that he took foreign wives. Really, the prohibition in those days wasn't so much the amount of the wives, but he took wives who worshipped other gods, and it says in his old age, he let them turn his heart to worship those other gods. And we don't get a nice, tidy, good ending to his life. And that influence begins to be passed on and passed on until you have a pattern established. And I'll just pull out a random king. 1 Kings chapter 16. You probably never even heard of King Omri. But uh, 1 Kings 16 verse 25. But what Omri did was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. He followed the example of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, in all the sins he had committed and led Israel to commit. And the people provoked the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, with their worthless idols. And that seems to be a pattern that's just established over and over again. It's a very dangerous pattern and cycle. And I'm going to break that pattern down for us in the next few minutes. It starts with God being good. The pattern starts, if you recognize it, with God rescuing his people. Because that's who God is. God rescues. He rescues. Even when we don't deserve it, he offers help. He offers deliverance. He offers forgiveness. A theological term for this is called prevenient grace. It means before grace before. Before you seek God, before you turn to him, he is pursuing you, reaching out to you, blessing you, offering you good things. Every good thing you have comes from him, whether you acknowledge it or not. That's his prevenient grace. The fact that God offers you forgiveness, even though you don't deserve it, that's his grace that goes before anything you've ever done for him. God reaching out to us, even though we, uh, we're not great at following him, God rescues. But then the next thing you see in the pattern established here is that people sin. Free choice. God gives that to us. He created us that way. He allows us to choose. We can choose his way or our own way. And all of us at some point or another, most of us many, many times, decide that our way's better. And we sin. Sin here being defined as disobedience to God's will, to God's commands. Now, typically, the sin described in this history book of Judges and Kings Typically, the history described here is following after other gods, chasing after other gods besides the one true God. Sometimes it even describes the people as worshiping God, capital G, while still chasing after others as well. Now, the, the day that we live in, and the way most of us here would live our lives, it's, I would just guess it's highly unlikely than anybody in this room has ever gotten on their knees before some kind of sculptured statue and bowed down to it and prayed some words or offered sacrifices of some kind. It's possible, but it's not highly likely, especially in the culture we live in. So when we think about the parallels of worshiping other gods and idols, we're like, well, none of us do that. Yeah, you may have never gotten down on your knees before a little statue, 
But plenty of us have bowed down, groveled on our knees before money, sex, power, maybe even just a little bit of celebrity or fame, escape for sure, different means of that, instant gratification. And the worst thing about these idols that we chase after when we fail to remember the Lord, the worst thing about them is, as the Old Testament history points out, is that they're utterly useless when you need them the most. When you really need help, those things don't come through for you. They're of no help when the consequences come. Because that's the next thing that happens in this pattern. God rescues, people sin, and then consequences come. And the things that we've chased after are of no help when the consequences are coming down on us. And they do come down on us, don't they? Hmm? Hurt, pain, maybe even suffering, heartache, families destroyed, possessions lost, misery, discouragement, despair, hopelessness, just loss, consequences, rolling down on us like a flood. I read a, I read a story the other day, a, a dad named Darren Smith, uh, he was at the beginning of Lent uh, season, the season in, uh, in the Christian calendar that we're in right now. He said he and his wife, they sat down at dinner with their three daughters, and uh, the, the daughters are ages 6, 8, and 11, and uh, he attempted to explain to them the meaning of this season that uh, the, the family was trying to observe and the practices that that go with it. And he said, you know, Lent, Lent's a time to, to really do what the Bible calls repent. You know, that's to turn away from things that aren't of God and turn to God. And, and so we take this special season to be sorry for the things that, that, that are not right and turn towards God and to think about how we should live for Him as we get ready to celebrate His, uh, his resurrection on Easter. And he said, he, so far when he was explaining that, his girls seemed to be kind of zoned in and, and listening to him. Kind of their eyes seemed to say that they were getting it. So he, he said to them, you know, so some people, they, they show that they're thinking about that, that uh, when Jesus gave up his life for us, that maybe during this time we ought to think about giving up something thinking about him. And he gave them some examples like some people give up their computers or coffee or, or chocolate, or, um, or hamburgers, or some people give up television. And he said to the girls, you know, it doesn't make God love you anymore when you do this, but it, it, just, it just, we think, makes you a little more open to God and maybe takes out some of the, the, the stuff in our minds and hearts that would keep him from understanding how much he loves us. And he said, so far, my, my daughter still seemed to recognize what I was talking about. And so he said to him, so we want to do the same thing as a family. We want to show God that we're thinking about him in a special way, 
until Easter, and your mom and I, we're going to give up all our, all the sweet things that we eat, all candy, all desserts. We're giving them all that up un, until Easter Sunday, and we want you girls to think of what, what you might give up, and, and we hope that would mean a lot to you. He said their 11-year-old daughter immediately said, Daddy, I'll give up sweets too. And the 8-year-old said, me, me too, Dad, me too. And then the youngest daughter, he said, had kind of a confused look on her face. And then her eyes kind of brightened up and her lights came on and she said, I know I want to give up consequences. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? That'd be awesome. The best Lent ever. No consequences. What if we could actually do that? But even when we try to avoid or deny them, they still come, don't they? And when they do, what do people do? When you're hurt, when you got trouble, pain, suffering, heartache, destruction going on in your life, what do you, what do, you do when consequences come? You cry out to God, say, God, help me. God, help me, I've got trouble, I've got mess, I've got problems. I'm dealing with consequences. Please come and rescue me. Sometimes it sounds a little more like, oh, God, help me. I know that you and I haven't been exactly close lately. I know I've done a lot of things that, that I shouldn't, but would you please get me out of this mess? And I promise, Lord, I will do better. I will, do, I will straighten up. I'll do better next time. You get me out of this, God, I'm, I'm yours. And amazing thing, because of his mercy, when God sees fit, even in spite of what's led us here, God rescues again. Most of us have been rescued, forgiven more than once. God comes with a way out. He comes with restoration. He comes with reconciliation to make things right. He offers the forgiveness. He offers the hope that we just can't find anywhere else. He offers the peace. And that is so good to know. If you're in a mess this morning and you cry out to God for rescue and for help, if you are sincere and you mean it in faith, if you seek Him, He is going to come to you and forgive you and offer you restoration and hope this morning, today. But the realization is still this. In this life, when this pattern's going on, even though God will come in and rescue, the damage still lingers. Now you were with me there for a minute because I was giving you some really good news. And now maybe you've bailed on me. The damage of this pattern lingers. The wreckage from our choices is still around. Children influenced, people hurt, relationships still not what they once were, what we wish they were as the pattern is followed over and over again. 
and it has such a powerful impact on the next generation. You know, Gideon in the book of Judges is one of the main heroes. And if you know his story, God called him to be a leader even though he was the smallest guy from the smallest family, from the smallest clan, from the smallest tribe, and the weakest and all of that. And, and he really tested God in terms of, of, of being sure that it was God that was speaking to him and calling to him. But, but anyway, God raised him up with a small army to beat a great army. And he was the judge over the people of Israel for, for a number of years. But Gideon didn't make all the right choices and in some ways followed some of this same pattern. And the result can be found in Judges chapter 8, verse 33. It said, As soon as Gideon died, the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping the images of Baal, making Baal Barith their God. They forgot the Lord their God who had rescued them from all their enemies surrounding them. Nor did they show any loyalty to the family of Gideon, despite all the good God had done for Israel. You know that, that definition of insanity that's been out in our culture for a number of years? I mean, I don't think it's really the technical definition that, they, that doctors use, but you know that definition of insanity? You, you know what it is? Doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting what? Different results. And you keep getting those same results, but you do the same thing again and just are shocked that it turned out the same way. You followed the same pattern, made the same kind of choices, caught up in the same cycle, and somehow surprised or expecting that something new and different is going to happen. You know, the, the Bible has an interesting, but I think memorable way of describing that kind of thinking, or if you want to be strong, we'll call it insanity. It's in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 11. Maybe some of you could memorize this today and adopt it as your life verse. Um, Proverbs 26, 11 says, As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats his foolishness. Now say that with me. Yeah. I don't know what he talked about today, but he did say vomit. So. Something about a dog and vomit and whatever. As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his foolishness. This pattern we've talked about, God rescues, people sin. Consequences come, people cry out. God rescues again, and the damage lingers. I'm, I'm just going to ask, ask you this morning, is this pattern present in your life? Is this, is this cycle, this pattern we're talking about, does this in any way describe where you're living? What you're living in, what you're living through? If, if it is, I want to assure you with everything I've got, with all the authority of God's Word and the Holy Spirit this morning, that, that uh, you can establish 
Let me say it this way. You can allow the Lord to establish in your life a new and better way. And the cycle, the pattern can be, praise God, broken. I promise you that. And I can look out here and see it. Over 11 years, I can look out here and see some cycles that have been broken. Some chains that have come off. Some people whose lives are completely different and transformed in the goodness of God in the last decade. And some even less than that. I can see others. It's the pattern. It's not going to change, folks. Unless, unless, hear the way out right here. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Revelation that comes because of what Christ has done. Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think, and then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Offer yourself completely and let him change you. If you can bear with me a couple more minutes, I, I want to read you a story this morning. It's a, it's a story from C.S. Lewis. It's part of his book called The Great Divorce. The Great Divorce doesn't really, it's not really a book about marriage per se. And in that, uh, in that book, C.S. Lewis tells a, about a busload of people who travel to heaven on their way to take up residence in hell. I understand this is all metaphor, so don't get nervous about that. And these people appear thin and, and ghost-like. And, and in the amazing atmosphere of heaven, and most of them immediately flee back to the comfort of their bus when they see what heaven is like. And one of these ghosts who is plagued by a, a very talkative uh, red lizard. And in the story, the red lizard represents the, the power of temptation, of sin and lust. And that little red lizard sits on the shoulder of this ghost-like character. And he ventures out into the plains of heaven and encounters an angel there. And C.S. Lewis described their meeting, the meeting of this ghost and the angel, as a, as a parable of God's invitation to break the power of sin in our life and transform us into something for his glory. It goes like this. Pay attention. A mighty angel approached the man and asked, Would you like me to make the lizard quiet? Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Uh, 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 wait, you're burning me. Back off, said the ghost, retreating. Do you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I, I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel. Shall I kill it? 
Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks so much, said the ghost. May I kill it, said the angel. Honestly, I don't think there's really the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I'll be able to keep it in order now. Some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. Get back, you're, you're burning me. How can, how can I tell you to kill it? You'd, you'd kill me too if, if, if you did. The angel said, that is not so. Well, why are you hurting me now? I never said I wouldn't hurt you. I said I wouldn't kill you. And suddenly the lizard began chattering loudly, be careful. Be careful, he can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. And then you'll be without me forever and ever. I'll be good. I promise. I admit I've gone too far sometimes in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. The angel looked at the ghost and said, Have I got your permission? The ghost said, You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then may I? The ghost bellowed, Yes, do it. Get it over with. Kill him. God, help me, please. The next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I have never heard. And the burning one, the angel, closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, and then flung it broken-backed on the turf. And then I saw unmistakably solid, but growing every, every moment more solid, the ghost materialized into a man, not much smaller than the angel. And the man, now free from his torment, rode into the waiting arms of his Savior. Our temptation is to think, I can handle it, whatever it is. It's not that bad. It's not that big a deal. But the pattern is, eventually, it handles us and destroys, begins to destroy us, and the consequences come, and we cry out to God and say, God, please help me, and God helps us. And then when we get to feeling good again, we think, oh, I can, I can do what I want again. After all, God's just there to make me happy. And we get into the pattern again, the pattern again. Don't you want to see the cycle broken? Don't you want to have a new and better way described there where you can let God transform you into a new person, change the way you think, which is going to transform the way you act, and then you'll learn to know God's will for you, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let me, let me read those two verses again from Romans as Eugene Peterson put it in the message. This may sound a little more like your everyday language. He says this, So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. And don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out and readily recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it 
unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best in you and develops well-formed maturity in you. It just requires offering yourself to God and then letting Him establish that pattern, a new pattern of long obedience in His direction. And it'll transform your life and it'll have a huge impact on the world and on everybody that God brings under your influence. Lord, I thank you this morning um, for your word. I feel like your word has been clear to us today. I feel like you have um, spoken to me directly and I believe to others here in this place. And I just ask you, Lord, to help us be honest with you and ourselves in, in just a couple of more minutes that we have together. And I pray, Lord, that uh, today some cycles could be broken and a new pattern in Christ established in the lives of men and women here and the lives of families here. Jesus, I pray that uh, we would see things clearly today. The enemy would love to really cloud our mind and and deceive us and tell us that we, it's really not all that serious, that the pastor's just a little worked up. And the Bible doesn't really, doesn't really call for that. And Lord, I, help, I pray that you'd help us to hear the truth. I pray that you would help us to, to understand the necessity of offering ourselves completely to you. I pray, Lord, that, uh, that we would hear it today. With your, uh, your heads bowed for just a moment, I just, I just want you to take just a minute. I know the Holy Spirit is here and speaking to people. And I'm just asking you to be quiet before him for just a moment. And if he's speaking to you about surrendering your life to him and breaking the cycle, I just encourage you today not to shut that down. Lord, I pray that, uh, that we would hear from you clearly. We'd respond obediently.